Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries. I'm joined by my son, Ephraim, today, and also a special guest, uh, Eddie Chumney, our friend from Hebraic Heritage Ministries International. And this is another edition of Questions and Answers. If you'd like to be a part of this program in the future, just send your question, biblical question, into our email, qa at lionlamb.net, and we'll make that a part of a future program. We have a number of questions that have come in for us, and so, Ephraim, if you'll be our moderator, we're going to also get the benefit of Eddie's scholarship to help us to answer some of these questions. So let's go right to it and uh, see what we got. Absolutely. Our first question comes from uh, Joshua, where he has a question about the book of Hebrews, and he asks this. My question uh, is this. Could the verse, uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, which uh, reads, um, when he said a new covenant, he who has made the first, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to disappear. Joshua's question is this. Could this simply be speaking of a time when the old covenant, specifically speaking of the old co- the covenant at Mount Sinai, when that covenant is gone? We know that this new covenant, covenant quote unquote, is not yet fully here as we are still teaching and learning, and not everyone knows the name of yod vav Could it be talking in the future when the time comes that we will see everything that the temple points or foreshadows? He also adds this. He says, when people ask me why I'm under the Old Covenant, I simply reply, which one? This, for the most part, puzzles many people as they are not aware of the multiple covenants that God has made and how none of them have gone away. But this particular verse seems to possibly indicate otherwise. Well, uh, let me jump in there right off the bat and say, yes, it's a very popular uh, Christian thought that Hebrews 8.13 is really speaking to the replacement of all of essentially the Old Testament by the New Testament. And they use that verse uh, to put that uh, point forward. Coming from Jeremiah 31, where it uses the term new covenant, uh, they think that's what the word new means. Um, And I don't believe that's what that verse is saying at all. I believe there's a completely different way of looking at what that verse is talking about. If I could use this analogy for the moment, um, when I was growing up, you know, while we had certain products uh, that that were advertised and we used in the home, for example, I remember Tide Soap. And it seems like every time they'd run a new commercial, whether they'd come out with Tide soap, new and improved. Now, everybody knew it was the same soap, uh, but there was some minor thing, and they, would, they were simply bringing out the emphasis this was the latest thing, but it was still Tide soap. Uh, to me, if you pick a single verse and your interpretation finds yourself in conflict with the weight of all of the other previous scripture, you don't have the right interpretation. That verse is really emphasizing an an element of what God is doing, and I think that that the Messiah's internalizing and going from a corporate covenant to a personal covenant with every one of us is, if you will, the new and improved part 
uh, of this. But it's still the same covenant that he made with God's people before. It's just that it's now highly personalized. It's in our own hearts. It's the, the commandments are written on the tablets of our heart. That's talking to me about internalization uh, as opposed to new commandments or different commandments or a whole different uh, agreement with God. So my view on that verse is not there's there's not a prophecy of a future thing it's simply talking about uh, what the messiah has established through the new covenant for us the fulfillment of jeremiah 31 yeah can i add to that absolutely um right along with the point you just made i think the scripture that points to it is ezekiel chapter 36 verses 26 and 27 it says a new heart will i give you a new spirit will i put within you i'm going to take away because Hebrews 8.13 is something that's being taken away. I'm going to take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I'm going to put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and to keep my judgments and do them. So uh, in Romans, Paul talks about crucifying the old man. That just as Messiah died once, that old man is, is to be crucified. And be crucified daily. So that old man is, is fading away. And the influence of what the new covenant is, the Torah written upon our heart by the Spirit, should become weightier and weightier and weightier. So, so the, the flesh that is to be crucified diminishes and the Torah and the Spirit of God that's in us should be increasing. And that's new because the stony is, is going away. That's one possibility. Right. Um, another possibility is the book of Hebrews is highlighting and contrasting Yeshua being Melchizedek priest versus the Levitical priesthood. And um, the Levitical priesthood governed the nation of Israel from the sin of the golden calf um, up through Yeshua dying and, and bringing in the new covenant. He is a Melchizedek priest and the priesthood that governs the new covenant is his Melchizedek priesthood. And so the the Levitical priesthood has been exchanged for the Melchizedek priesthood. And the Levitical priesthood has not been done away with, because we see in, in Ezekiel, with Ezekiel's temple, that we have the Levitical priest administering. It's just that the Melchizedek priesthood is superior. And that's another possibility of way to look that in addition to what we've already enumerated. Yeah, obviously this is a crucial item for people that want to hold to that the New Testament has replaced the Old Testament. We as Messianics, as we continue to keep the commandments, we're going to get opposition from people who have taken that verse, I think, truly out of context and and tried to interpret it in a completely different way than the way Jeremiah gave it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Jeremiah gave a very good prophecy. Uh, he was emphasizing and highlighting to Israel these were the wonderful things that, that God was going to be doing. But he was never advocating, we're getting rid of Israel, we're getting rid of the covenant made with Israel, or any of that other business. I, I think we, we've taught many times before how the Hebrew concept of what new means obviously means renewed, not to replace the old. And I think that's what we t- tend to think in our minds, Correct. is that something new has to replace the old in the same way the verse in Ezekiel I don't think the Lord's talking about literally taking out a stony heart and putting a heart of flesh it's a spiritual change it's right. a spiritual a re- transformation truly it's not a new heart it's not a new not piece physically. of flesh but it's a spiritual concept in the same way that this is not a repl- 
replacement of the old. Joshua is asking a question, is asking if there is a time in the future in which the covenant, specifically at Mount Sinai, will somehow either be diminished. I, I almost don't I, believe so. No, I, I, I think the covenants are progressive and they add to, in the, in the kingdom, we're going to get the covenant of peace. It'll be the seventh of the covenants. And all of them still fit together. They all are, uh, the word of God is perfect and forever settled in the heaven. There's no reason to go back and make any amendments or changes to it. Right. Uh, so I think it's all part of it. It's, it really is the manifestation of God. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, as, as he continues to reveal himself, it doesn't mean the other parts go away. It's just we have a better and more fuller understanding right. of the agreement between God and man. And each of these covenants are an everlasting covenant. That, that They're salt that, covenants, like salt's permanent. Uh, yeah. This is called the salt covenant. I do like Joshua's answer that when he asks why he's under the old covenant, I love his answer where he says, I, which uh, one? Oh, I love That's that. That's an excellent response. That's an excellent response, you know, because it, it gets people back to what does the Scripture say instead of interpretation, mm-hmm. uh, men's interpretation of Scripture, like which one? Let's be specific. It, it it provokes them to thinking, wait, there's more than one covenant? Yeah, the old covenant? more than to the old covenant than what they thought it was. Right. On the same subject of the book of Hebrews, Mark had a question as well where he asks, is there a verse uh, besides in Hebrews uh, that talks about the law being defective? Hebrews is clear about saying the priesthood and the covenant was deficient. Also speaking of better sacrifices, uh, better sacrifices in the plural, that there are better sacrifices as it's described. And Hebrews says um, that it doesn't make the comers perfect, but only a shadow of things to come, but not the image. Um, his main question is, is there any other parts of Scripture that talks about the, uh, the law being defective in any way? I, no, the, the, the Scripture speaks to the exact opposite. Uh, the Scripture speaks to that the Word of God is perfect. You know, forever settled in heaven. And, and I think what he's doing, I, I would throw the argument back this way by saying, look, if you're looking at the history of Israel and their keeping of the covenant, uh, and they had the benefit of the Torah and the law and so forth, they didn't do a very good job of keeping it, did they? Well, you, well let's stop criticizing them. Let's look at ourselves. We're the recipients of the new covenant. How good a job are we doing? Keeping that covenant that God's, I, I submit to you that there's nothing new under the sun. We're just as messed up as other people have been messed up uh, before we make the same errors and mistakes that they made. Now, we're supposed to be learning from their example, but here we are. You know, we, we have our own shortcomings. Now, we're going to blame God's new covenant for our mistakes, and and I don't believe we can blame the Torah for Israel's mistakes in the past either. Yeah, from um, the church teaching dispensationalism, which is age of law, age of grace, they put the focus on what God gave rather than what you pointed out is is the receivers, our heart and what and what we're doing with it, that the uh, the Torah, the Ten Commandments, was written on tablets of stone. That was a prophecy that it, that the receivers would receive it with a stony heart. What did they do? They built the golden calf. What did they do? They disobeyed in the wilderness. The problem wasn't the Torah or the one that gave the Torah. The problem was with the people themselves. And um, the Torah is given as a covenant. So, therefore, James says in James 2.10, if you break one point of the covenant, you've broken the covenant. And so the, the problem wasn't with the covenant. It's, it's just that because 
it was given as a covenant and just like uh, an agreement that we make. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if there's a clause in there that you violate, you can say, hey, you're in violation of our agreement. And so the, the purpose, as, as Paul wrote in the New Testament, is that um, because it was given as a covenant, and if you break one point, you've broken it all, that points you to the need of a Messiah. Mm-hmm. And so we should understand it and view it that way. Not that there was something wrong with what was given the Torah itself. Yeah, well, a great question to ask is fundamentally when the covenant was broken, which part was flawed? Was the covenant and the law flawed or was the people keeping the covenant flawed? Exactly. And you have to say, it's like, well, of course, it's the people. So what's the part that needs to change? The hearts, the people. Of, the hearts of the people <laughs> receiving the covenant. Exactly. A, a great quote that I heard that went along with that is, uh, is that God originally intended to put his covenant in the hearts of his people, but he instead found the rocks of Mount Sinai to be a softer substance to write his word into. <laughs> and so I've loved that quote. I haven't heard that one. I've that always loved that, loved that quote that, that yeah. originally he, that's what he wanted to do, but the, they were too immature. To because there the is heart. a difference of hardness level of different rocks. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Correct. So I've always All loved right. that quote to... Uh, Wrap that subject up. Our next question uh, comes from Tim. He asks this, God sent prophets to foreshadow Yeshua's first coming. Will God again send prophets to foreshadow Yeshua's second coming? I think the short answer on this is yes, he will. In fact, in Daniel chapter 12, the, the last chapter, it talks about as we approach the day of the Lord, end of the ages and so forth, mm-hmm. that God will call men of insight who will come and give understanding to many. Right. So there is some sort of group, there is some sort of effort on the part of the Lord at the end of the ages to dispatch uh, a, a group of people that's going to go out to minister to the people and and to bring emphasis and attention to what the prophecies are about the second coming, just as there was before. You know, we had the prophets trying to get us ready to receive the Messiah and to understand what the Messiah would do. Mm-hmm. Also, Malachi 4, 4 and 5. I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So... We have the ministry of Elijah. So, so there's, and then you could say the two witnesses. They certainly are there before the coming of the Lord. Uh, so there's plenty of prophecies that says there's people going to be dispatched to help with this whole process. Unfortunately, they probably will face the same persecution that the uh, biblical prophets of old uh, probably faced as well. If they're true prophets, they probably will. Yes. Right. And so obviously that's something to keep in mind. In fact, one of the ridicules might be that people might think, "Oh, you equate." yourself to the prophet Isaiah or the prophet Elijah? Well, and if you recall, one of the strongest things the Messiah did say about the end of the age is that false prophets would be prevalent. Mm -hmm. And so obviously there's got to be prophets, uh, you know, there at the end. We have to be careful, avoid the false prophets and find those that are designated and anointed the Lord to assist us in this process. One of the things I also love clearing up is that the idea, the office of prophet is not necessarily somebody who foretells the future. Future. They simply speak the word of the Lord. They right, give they're warning. forth tellers. Yeah, they, give, we... they give warning and they and they speak the word of the Lord, and that's usually what people don't want to hear. That's why they receive persecution, is because they're 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 an ambassador to the Lord. They represent the Lord when they speak. Don't you just love it when a guy walks up to you and points out to you all the wrong things you're doing? Right. Or specifically. They show them where they've departed from the Torah mm-hmm. and that they need to return to the Torah. The right. primary function of the biblical prophet is to return you to the Torah, right. the Word. 
Yeah. The, the idea that prophets are going to show up and say, the Lord's going to return here, that's not even the biblical that's not, example. That's not what it's what about. What it is, is it's about giving, preparing the people, preparing for the the people to receive it. Exactly. Right. All right. Our uh, next question comes from an email address with the first name was, uh, was withheld. It says, uh, hunting guide in the email uh, address. And it says this, Monty, I've come out of the Christian church and have been following Torah for about two years. My wife rejects this new faith and gets sick if I talk about when she, she talk about it when she is around. Do you know any place to assemble or counsel? We are in southwest Montana. Thank you very much for your teaching. Uh, well, I don't have a, pl- a place at the moment. I'd have to look at the database, see if we have anybody in the ministry at a year in the same situation. Right off the bat, I don't know of anybody, but... Uh, if you contact the ministry directly, if we do have somebody in the area there, we can. What we do is we'll contact them, let them know that there's a brother that's interested in meeting them, and if they're agreed to it, then we'll share the information between them. Uh, that's one way to do it. The other, the other way, the other way uh, is. Um, that there are some sites like MessianicDirectory.com, I believe is still indicating different groups and fellowships that are in various areas. You can check on that uh, to see if you can find a fellowship or grouping of brethren that are in the area. Don't be discouraged by all of that. Uh, God is in the business of calling the remote, uh, the, the remnant out of the remotest parts of the earth in this generation. And just because you're coming from the area and you're the only one, well, you're just fulfilling a prophecy, so be encouraged. You know, the Lord's using you and, and He's got more coming. Go ahead. Um, what about his question where he says, uh, my wife rejects this new faith, and do you have any counsel? Well, uh, you know, the, the you can't force uh, the things of the Lord down someone's throat. you got to do it lovingly uh, to him, just like Paul talks about. Uh, it's, uh, things are shared in love. But the best thing that I can say to you is just be a good example. Be steadfast in your obedience and your faithfulness, and eventually that works on on a person who's opposed to it. If they see that you're faithful and committed to it, in the long run it just kind of soaks them, softens them up to either ask more questions, to learn more about it, and or come to terms with it. And so that would be, especially with a, a spousal relationship, you just just got to be faithful. And make sure your relationship with your wife remains solid. Correct. <laughs> that you continue to love your wife and, and be gracious to her. Yeah, you, you have to always remember that it's the, it's the stirring of the Holy Spirit inside one's heart that causes them to turn and to change in the same way that the Lord has obviously turned in your heart to, to start following Torah and do those things. You have, it's got to be the same work of the Holy Spirit that causes that, that change. Well, obviously praying for her mm-hmm. and praying for God to give her insight and and understanding by his spirit obviously is is a tremendous part of it. Yeah, one other uh, couple of verses that you can always ask to actually provoke <coughs> questions and discussion kind of thing is uh, John chapter 5 at the end of the verse 46 and 47 where it says, if you believe the words of Moses, you believed in me for he wrote of me. People who are rejecting the idea of Torah teaching but have a faith in Yeshua have to recon- start reconciling well, those verses. But I would also, don't be shocked when a religious church person won't even listen to scripture 
you know, on this. It, remember, this is a spiritual matter. Mm -hmm. It's not just a knowledge uh, thing. So it's, it's so don't be shocked when they won't even listen to the scripture uh, to it because this is a spiritual battle that's taking place. Yeah. All right, our next question uh, comes from uh, Theodoro, and he asks this. He says, Hi, Lion and Lamb Ministry. Um, I was meditating my Bible in the book of Luke, uh, chapter 23, verse 43, where Jesus answered the other criminal and said, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So my question is this, is that Jesus Christ went to paradise the same day with the other criminal. Now, I know we've talked many times about the, the afterlife and how that all transitions, so I'm actually going to kick this over to Eddie and see yes. uh, what Eddie, Eddie. What, what you'd like to say about this uh, verse. Well, um, Judaism sees that there's different components to the soul. And Judaism teaches that the lowest level of the soul um, is called the nephesh. And the nephesh is connected to the flesh itself. And so um, in Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, it says about Yeshua that you will not leave my soul in hell and I'm pretty sure that that word soul is nephesh now Judaism teaches that the higher element of the soul is the neshama and they associate the ruach the spirit which we separate from the soul but the ruach is is associated with the soul itself so Judaism teaches that the neshama and the ruach is the godly part of you, the godly part of the soul. And upon death, it leaves and it returns to God, not the nephesh. And, and in, in Psalm 16, verse 10, it says, You will not leave my soul, my nephesh, um, in hell. And so regarding the word paradise itself, let's look at uh, Revelation in chapter... Uh, 2 in verse 7 Yeshua said he that overcomes will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God so this is a euphemism for the presence of God which we commonly call the presence of God heaven and, and so one way to perhaps to look at this is how is Yeshua in his essence in his presence represented because he said you'll be with me what do you mean by me no right okay well in Romans chapter 8 in verse 9, it says, If the Spirit of God dwells in you, now if any man have the Spirit of Christ, you see the Spirit of God is now being called the Spirit of Christ. And so if, uh, if this person, if his neshama and his ruach left his body, not the nephesh, and now is in the presence with the Spirit of Messiah, if he's with the spirit of Messiah, then it can be said that he's with Messiah, even though perhaps Messiah's nephesh, when it says in, in Psalm 16, verse 10, you're nephesh in hell. Mm -hmm. And so perhaps that might be a way to look at that. In addition, if you want to be more um, extensive than that, is that a day is with the Lord a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. So you'll be with me today. Does that mean literally in this 24-hour period? Or does that mean in, in, in the realm of time going forward in the sense that a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day? So there's different ways that you can look at and, and perhaps reconcile just that he himself um, may not have immediately when he died, that is Yeshua, you know, 
what went to, as we would say, went to heaven. It, it's the fundamental question of how do we be? How can we be with the Lord? Well, he's saying it's like I'll be with you in paradise. Okay, does that mean his presence will be in present in dwelling within him? Will their souls be together in paradise with with the Lord, or will they be in the kingdom in the thousand year day, thousand year reign, or they or or this twenty four hour period will die within twenty four hours and then we'll be together in another place? There's so many layers to look at it. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Uh, our, very ne- our next question uh, comes from Debbie. She asks this. Can you tell me more about how to keep Hanukkah? Now, we obviously, we just completed Hanukkah, uh, but, and we just completed our conference. So if you want to, we can, uh, we'll capture this clip, and obviously we'll keep it. You know it. what? I'm going to kick that question back to you. <laughs> All righty, then. Uh, tell us more how to keep Hanukkah. Well, there's multiple ways. Obviously, it's a, it's a celebrated festival, not a, <clears throat> commanded, uh, not a commanded feast from the Scripture, but it is, it's a cultural national holiday of Israel. We celebrate the, uh, it's almost like an Independence Day of sorts, where you had the story of the Maccabees who uh, uh, liberated Jerusalem from the Greeks, and then a miracle took place as well. So you celebrate it in the same way that we, it's a nationalistic holiday to celebrate that miracle. You use a Hanukkah, yes. you know, for eight-day uh, candle, mm-hmm. candlelight. What, what's the difference between a Hanukkah and a menorah? Well, Hanukkah is definitely nine lights. A menorah is seven lights, yeah, or it but, can be smaller number. Of and and if I believe it was created to pattern the menorah right. in the temple because it, that's what the was Hanukkah lit with is the oil. definitely used with Hanukkah, right? As opposed to a menorah, it could be a temple menorah, it could be a Shabbat menorah. Menorah. Uh, it specifically is for Hanukkah. Yeah. Now, a lot of people, especially in the modern culture of today, people have taken Hanukkah and used it as a substitute. For Christmas, where those that have come into a messianic faith, they still have fond memories of being spending time with family, and which we holiday. don't really encourage them to do that. It 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 stands on its own. Yes, and it, it's not a replacement for Christmas. So, it it's uh, it has a, a tremendous story to it. Mm-hmm. Thank goodness it took place, or else we might not have had a nation of Israel for the Messiah to come. You know, so obviously it was important in history for uh, providentially as to how it played out. But it's a nationalistic story. It's about a small band that overcome uh, the people and the culture that was oppressing, mm-hmm. you know, the things of the Lord. And there was a rededication, a re-restoration of sorts. So it speaks to a great message of every one of us, yeah. you know, rededicating ourselves and being restored to the Lord as well. The background of it is in the book of Daniel, mm-hmm. where the book of Daniel says, uh, you know, through interpretation that Alexander, the Greek empire, was going to come, and then that Greek empire is going to be split into four, and then there's going to be one that come from that. So the book of Daniel does speak of that, and we interpret and understand the one that came historically was Antiochus the fourth. And he's the one that decreed to the Jews that they shouldn't follow the Torah, which led to the Maccabean rebellion. So even though it's not in Leviticus chapter 23, the background of it uh, is in our Bibles, in the book of Daniel. It's part of the customs of Israel, Mm -hmm. if we identify with Israel. And apparently the Messiah identified with it, because in John chapter 10 there's a mention of the Feast of Dedication when he was in the temple. Mm -hmm. And And it speaks to the prophecies of the end of days. Correct. The rededication of an altar that sets the stage for the end of days. Yeah. So, so to maybe a- answer the question or kind of wrap it all up, how to actually keep Hanukkah? 
it, as a festival, it should be a time with family, with, with celebrating. We, it's a, it is considered a feast. The easiest way is to get with other brethren that are keeping it. They can show you very simple how to do these things, mm-hmm. how to say the blessings, and how to have a lot of fun. Yeah. And enjoy. You remember what happened, mm-hmm. but then you celebrate it with um, lighting candles and being with family and and uh, looking forward to what it means in the future. Correct. And in, and in a spiritual sense, because it's about the rededication of the temple, you can take that time also to rededicate your life to the service of the Lord in the same way. So there's definitely, I mean, you, some, you can have the, the... Very, very good spiritual themes. You can have the fun, you can it. have the custom, you can have the tradition, the time with family, but then it also can have a great spirit, have spiritual weight to it as well. So we do encourage the brethren to celebrate the Feast of Hanukkah. All right, our next question comes from Don, uh, and he asks this. His specific question is this. Uh, is the sinner's prayer scriptural, and can you provide relevant words of prayer for our God the Father and Son Yeshua for forgiveness? I wrote an article about this. It's uh, called The Sinner's Prayer. It's one of the Yavo published articles. And uh, <laughs> essentially the argument that I'm making in that article is that in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, uh, where we have Moses going up to be in the cleft of the rock to be confronted with the personality of the Lord uh, and the Lord is sharing his attributes with Moses Moses essentially goes through on behalf of Israel at a corporate level does the sinner's prayer and the example of the repentance and turning back and asking God uh, to be a part of that, which is what the sinner's prayer is on an individual basis, it's done by Moses. The example is given to us right there. Mm-hmm. And it's while Moses is in the cleft of the rock, and each of us make a sinner's prayer when we're standing in the, the shadow, if you will, of what the Messiah's redemption is, and we want that redemption, and so we cry out and ask for God for that redemption, the forgiveness of sin, pardon us, O Lord, for our iniquities. You know, come be a part of me. Let me be part of you. Let me let me receive the inheritance that comes with the gift of eternal life. And so, the prayer is right there uh, with Moses on Mount Sinai. As again, I have an article in the Yavo called "The Sinner's Prayer." It goes through the details of that. I think you'll find that to be very enlightening. Right. Now, is, um, now, in Christianity, there is a specific written form that is called the sinner's prayer. Well, there's a, there's a standard kind of prayer. Right. You know, when they you make an altar call and you come up, and there's kind of like three points to it. You know, it's mm-hmm. you repent, you confess your sin to the Lord, you ask for, ask for forgiveness, mm-hmm. you know, to it, and then you ask for the gift of eternal life. Yeah. Uh, you know, you ask to receive what the Lord has to offer. Uh, that's essentially the same prayer of Moses. He's doing the same thing, but he had the, where he's doing it in Exodus, he's doing it for all of Israel at a corporate level, whereas you and I come and we do it at an individual level, at a personal level. All right. So that's the basis of it. Very good. Uh, this next question, well, I'm going to shoot over to Eddie first. Uh, this comes from Michelle in regards to Joel chapter 2. It's specifically verse 28. Where the Lord says he will pour out his spirit on all people or flesh. Why would he pour out his spirit on unbelievers or those who hate him? In context, he is speaking to Israel, but it seems that the phrase includes each person who is alive. What are your thoughts on this? Well, um, this is quoted in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 
2, beginning in verse 16, it says, And this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. It will come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And so if, if you think of pouring out his spirit in the context that every single person has a spiritual experience, well, that's not what it's talking about. It, it means the Spirit of God is there and available um, so that that which the Spirit of God is doing, um, you can receive what the Spirit of God is doing. The, the opportunity, the availability is there. Now, um, there's a context of this that I, I don't think... Uh, very many in the body of Messiah is is going to have a perspective of. But in Ezekiel 38-39, talks about Gog-Magog war. The Gog-Magog coalition is defeated, and in Ezekiel 39-25, God declares the exile over, and at the end of the chapter, it says that I'm going to now pour out my spirit. So I believe the end days pouring out of the spirit um, is for the purpose of gathering and uniting the exiles of Israel. And so the, the scriptures is calling upon his people um, to uh, participate in Messiah's function to gather and unite the exiles of Israel. And, and during that time, his spirit is going to be outpoured in a greater measure where people are going to uh, contemplate um, I need the Lord. I need the Messiah. And so for salvation, it's going to be there. For ending the exile, it's going to be there. And of course, he's going to be speaking to different peoples about different things and showing them things, dreams and visions. And so um, that's the context by I wish, but I believe that this uh, prophecy is referring to. Well, and, and let me just add this, that uh, it's not correct on our part to take the scripture to the literal nth degree and turn it into legalistically interpreted. Uh, for example, the Messiah, specifically in emphasizing the importance and the commitment of discipleship to him, said, unless you hate your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, and so forth, he's not advocating that you hate your mother and your father. He, he's talking about the relative commitment for discipleship. Priority. The priority of it. And so the same thing here is we have several places where it's talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's not an absolute thing. It's in support of a whole host of things that are taking place. And this is a case of um, that's good language, you know, that explains what's going on. But don't take it to the absolute degree mm-hmm. uh, that it would mean even sinners and, and uh, you know, all that kind of thing. Well, I mean, the, the specific question r- really is asked where it says, why would he pour out a spirit on unbelievers or those who hate him? Which we're not advocating that he did. Right, but at the same time also we sit here and say, it's like, well, how in the world will unbelievers suddenly become believers? It it's would because be a move the, of the Holy it's, Spirit. it's available to them. Right. When they turn to the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord is right there with them. Right. And so it, but like in the case of Acts chapter 2, there were many in Israel on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was outpoured. They didn't receive the Spirit. Right. But there was a whole bunch of dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's not trying to be absolute. It's talking about a process. Yeah. 
I, I think we, there might be a nature inside us that would almost want to say, well, why wouldn't the Lord just pour out the Spirit on His people and then the other people who have hated Him, they, don't, well, they almost now, don't deserve now it. Now you're into the question of sovereignty. Right. And in Romans 9, Paul talks about the issue of, you know, Esau I hated, Jacob I loved. Who are you to question what what the Lord is doing? Mm-hmm. I mean, the Lord makes decisions about who lives and who dies. Right. He's the author and finisher. Well, that comes with his territory of being a sovereign creator God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, since we're the clay in this process, we don't get to go ask the potter, what are you doing? Right. Uh, we, we're, we're part of his creation, we're part of his great plan, and it's our duty to be understanding of that he's, his ways are above our ways and, and so forth. We accept his judgments and decisions. We trust him. Right. We, we have to even understand that God has a plan and purpose for even the descendants of Esau. We have an entire prophet Obadiah that speaks to this. Yeah, I, you know, when this whole well. thing gets sorted out, well, I think when we get to the kingdom, we're going to go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. The Lord did the right thing there. Yeah, you know whether whether we understand it, it now or when not. we have all the information. When we have all it, when with all the pieces are there, then we'll go. Yeah, the Lord was very wise the way He did that, and and it worked out well. Might I recommend when we all get to the kingdom and we all look around at who's all there, and you see somebody maybe you didn't like, it might be good for you to not say, well, "What are you doing here?" I mean, it's like the question is like, "Why the Lord's poured Spirit out upon you?" It's like that's not for us to judge. That would be Correct. the sovereignty of the Lord Correct. To, to decide those things. Yeah, and I'm. Glad glad that he's willing to pour it out on everybody. That's right. So it's available to all. All may not receive it, but what he wants to do is available yes. for everyone. Right. right. Exactly. All right. Our next question comes from Isaac. He asks this. He starts by saying, please help. And he says this. I grew up in a Baptist church in Indiana. I still attend with my family, but for the past two years I've been studying Messianic beliefs. Now consider myself to be Messianic and no longer Baptist. My church is doing a class on a book called The Trail of Blood by Jay Carroll. It is a book claiming the Baptist church was started by Jesus himself and continues to be the one true church of the Bible. I know, of course, this is flawed in many ways. How do I go about this? My family has somewhat bought into the book, this book, and I don't want them to be led astray. My pastor claims the Baptist church was never part of the Catholic church. Is this false as well? Hoping to hear back soon. Appreciate you guys and all that you do. Um, I'm going to jump on this one. I, I used to be a Baptist. Uh, I used to be a Southern Baptist. I was a Southern Baptist minister. And one of the important documents that the Baptists use, especially Southern Baptists, we use this book to somehow define. We go back into history and we try to glean certain things to try to say, see, we were different from the Catholic Church. We didn't follow that path. You know, we were independent, uh, you know, and what we're doing right now is completely consistent with what happened in the first century, blah, 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 blah. And it's an effort to self-justify. That's really what it is. And they talk about the Anabaptists and other little strains and so forth as to what's going on. I got some bad news for my Baptist brethren. Yeshua didn't come to start Baptist churches. He came to save the world. And he came working with Israel. And Israel is the name of the kingdom. When we get to the New Jerusalem, there is no Baptist gate. 
there is gates for the children of Israel. And you either are numbered with them or you're not. So the whole premise of this book is to separate out and distinguish Baptists from all other denominations, all other elements of Christianity, to make it as pure that that's the pure strain that the Messiah was trying to work to. Listen, it's propaganda for Baptists. It's nothing more than that. It's an elitist mentality. Yeah. I'm not specifically familiar with this book, but in the past year, I watched a YouTube by a Baptist uh, pastor that made this claim that the Baptist church was started by Jesus himself and, and it continues as the one true church of God. And, and how the explanation was given is there's always been a people that were true followers and doing it the right way. Which is the remnant. So, Which is the remnant. So um, what this person pointed out was, you know, in the first century, there were the people called the way. And so, in principle, he was associated, there always was a, a people that was following the, the, the correct way, or, or the, the proper way as Yeshua taught. But the thing is, if you look at what the way believed and what the Baptists believed, the, well, the people but, the way kept the Sabbath, the people the way kept the festivals. But, but, but Eddie, I have to clear this up for you. <laughs> There's a reason why he was John the Baptist. Oh, yes. He was in the first Baptist church. Yes, of course. Okay. Now, once you understand that, yeah. then all of this will make a lot of sense, of too. Of course. So, um, as, it, as it relates to the, the Catholic Church, the, uh, this Baptist pastor pointed out, see, um, we didn't participate in these particular things um, that has been connected with the Catholic Church, but... Maybe he was correct in those particular things he right. pointed out. It's, but look, they're keeping Sunday. They're keeping Christmas and Easter. And that came from the Catholic Church. Right, I know. I so know. you can't it, say you're separate the from whole, the Catholic Church. The whole, the, the whole argument they make is fundamentally flawed. But trying to understand the motivation for the book, trying to understand why would... When I was with the Baptists, the reason why this book was brought out, the reason why it was taught, by the way, it was taught back in those days when I was there, it was an effort on the part of the Baptists to distinguish them themselves away from all of the denominations, particularly away from the Catholic Church, to somehow say we're the true strain of believers since the days of Yeshua the Messiah. That's what the book is about. Which so what would our advice maybe be to Isaac as far as the interaction with his family? Some do the same thing I do. Take it in stride and move on. <laughs> I'm serious. There's no need to fight it. It, it, it. There's not enough substance to the thing to make anything different than what we have today. I mean, the Baptist Church uh, embraces and teaches age of law, age of grace. Yeah. And that's not what Yeshua taught his disciples. He, right. said, he said, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching and them to observe Yeshua, what I taught you. To, let me repeat what I said to begin with. The purpose of the Messiah coming to us was not to establish the Baptist Church. Even though there's a John the Baptist? Even though there's a John the Baptist. <laughs> but he, but to save the world. Okay, let's not beat that one to death. Well, he, I, I do want to try and wrap it back up. To I mean, he's saying, please help. He's got some family who have bought into this. What would be a pointed question you know, he could well, ask a family member? Well, here's what I would do. is Just go back and teach what Yeshua said and stop, forget, stop trying to self-justify. Let's just go hear what the Lord has to say, and and let's speak to those things. I, I guess I'd probably do the same thing that Paul talked about. We preach not ourselves, 
but Yeshua the Ma- the the Yeshua the Messiah and Him crucified. Right. Let's focus on that, and everything will also be taken care of just fine. Don't preach ourselves. Don't try to go around self-defining yourself, um, because all that does is lead to frustration and division. Okay. All right. Excellent. Next question comes from uh, Jay and Renee up in Canada. They have a question specifically about Genesis 15 uh, at verse 11, um, which talks about how the sacrifice of Abraham, how he, uh, the, the sacrifice of the pieces, dividing them in uh, separate parts. I'm curious as to why the larger animals were cut in half, but the birds were left whole. It seems that there is something way deeper here uh, that is to be grasped, but I am unclear about what that reason would be. Uh, we had this question during our weekly Torah portion study. We'd really appreciate your input on the matter. Eddie, do you it's, referring, have some... it's referring to uh, a Genesis um, where Abraham makes the covenant, and the verse says, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, a young pigeon, and he... Then he walked between the pieces, etc. That's what he's referring to. Yeah, and what they did with the birds, you know, the procedure that was instead of cutting it in half, they would break it so that the wings would be spread flat. That was the way of preparing and presenting that sacrifice. The others, they were cut in half so they could be parsed, so that the, the, the parts could be put on the altar. Well, and a bird is small enough, you don't need to parse it into parts to put it on the altar. All you have to do is spread it, set it on the altar, and it's, it's present. Mm-hmm. I, I've always considered that was what was, it, it was just the practicality of the presentation to the altar. I, I've, I've known of no particular special understanding inside uh, that birds were offered in that particular technique or way that I'm aware of. Do you, do, have you heard of any? Well, when the, the scripture tells us about things like this, it's going to have a physical meaning of why something's being done, but it also is going to have a spiritual meaning of why something's being done. And um, I can tell you one uh, rabbinic interpretation of this is this represents um, Israel and the nations who would take them into captivity. Um, you know, a goat being Greece, and and they 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 said it, it represents Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, and Rome, and I, I believe Israel was. A, so what so they, they do with the birds? Israel's associated with the turtle dove. Okay, it's the poor man's offering. Well, I, I believe in the scripture. You can find uh, verses. I'm not quite sure. But Israel's called a turtle dove. Um, in Song of Solomon, um, the end of the exile is likened to a turtle dove. Well, I know the law specifies that as the offering of a poor person. Yeah, you mm-hmm. know, to be made. Uh, per- perhaps I'm I'm just uh, thinking here that because they weren't split into two, maybe it's a prophecy of Israel that they will not be completely divided, but there will always be something to still hold to hold on together. Um, I-, I did see uh, one thought. Um, that this ceremony was an ancient um, marriage ceremony. Mm-hmm. And with the splitting is where we get the custom. Um, uh, when you get married, you get the red carpet going down, and one side of the family sits on this side, and one side of the family so sits on this So for the procession and, mm-hmm. and recession. Yeah. That's interesting. And uh, so, once again, there's layered meanings here in addition to the literal reason why it would be done. There's layered spiritual meanings. Right. And then, then of course, you you can't talk about that without the idea that it was God who walked between the pieces for 
in place of Abraham. Abraham had fallen asleep and that the Lord walked and took is keeping the part of the covenant that Abraham was to keep. And that's why we have the sacrifice of Yeshua that even ties back to this. And uh, because this is a blood covenant mm -hmm. um, and the understanding of the blood covenant, there's an exchange of garments and then um, also in blood covenant that if I ever break the covenant, I deserve death. Mm -hmm. And so this is going to be a Torah reason why Yeshua needed to shed his blood is because he's a part of entering into this covenant with Abraham. And because Abraham broke the covenant and he's taken upon himself um, the, the, the part of Abraham, that Abraham and his seed deserve death for breaking the covenant, but in blood covenant, um, I can take upon myself for you. Mm -hmm. And so this is going to, in the Torah, uh, is going to be a legal reason why Yeshua is going to shed his blood on the tree. Right. So there's a connection to that as well. I actually have another question for you. When The last time that I read that passage as well, when it talks about what actually passed between the pieces, it says that it was a, uh, a burning furnace, a smoking furnace, and a burning torch. Mm -hmm. And I had the question, were those actually two separate things? Yeah, the, there is a, a belief and an understanding that it's, it's both the Father and Yeshua mm -hmm. that is present there in making the covenant. Right, they're, and, they're both there. And Yeshua, in other parts of scriptures, namely in the in Daniel, he's presented as the Son of God is presented as a flaming torch, as it was in the furnace yes. uh, there with Nebuchadnezzar. And so, and then of course God the Father, represented by the smoking furnace, such as what was on the top of Mount Sinai. Exactly. Excellent. Our next question uh, comes from another one, another email address where the name was not given. Uh, they ask this, uh, what is your opinion on the book of Enoch? And as it was written about 1200 B.C., would it not be valid to study? Well, let me, first of all, let me offer a slight correction. The belief is, and this is the scholarly position, <laughs> that there were elements of the book of Enoch that were written about 300 B.C., but the vast majority of the book of Enoch was really written in the first century. And so it, but it's written to make it sound like it was written even older mm -hmm. than before, when in fact it was really uh, a contemporary text in the first century. It didn't meet the grade uh, amongst the believers and amongst the apostles to cite it, to become part of Holy Writ, to become part of the canon of the Bible. It, but uh, I'll tell you what it reflects, and this is what I, the value I get out of it is, it's reflecting some of the thinking. Uh, that were on the part of different believers in the first century on particular topics that we'll touch on. And it gives a little bit of insight as to what, what were people thinking in those days. I mean, you know, if you collected people up today and you said, well, what are people thinking? But, uh, in other words, what are the contrasting thoughts compared to what we have in the faith? You know, you might make a list of different things and, and make a point about different things that we talk about. And that's what I see the book of Enoch is doing. It's just, it's giving different contrasting thoughts that was going on with the believers thinking at that time. Now, as to how much weight that has to do it, well, I like understanding backgrounds. When I go to study scripture, it sometimes, you know, fills out the understanding a little better for me. But as to putting it and elevating it to the rank of the rest of the scripture, I wouldn't go there. Um, 
there is a verse in the book of Jude that quotes and makes reference yeah. to Enoch. Yeah. And so, um, like you said, it, it could be a book that helps to fill in some background and, 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 and get some context of things. But for whatever reason, it, it's not regarded as a part of the canon. Correct. All right. Our next question comes from Robert. He's got two questions here. His first one is this. Uh, what are your views on Freemasonry? I am a Mason as well as my grandfather and great-grandfather. I don't want to follow paganism or false teachings. I just found the Messianic movement, started my spiritual journey, and my mind is being opened daily. My father was a Freemason, um, and it's kind of a, a brotherhood organization of sorts. They do community good and things like that. It's kind of a... Fellowship Social thing. Club. Yeah. Um, there are some rituals that are in it uh, with different meanings, and I find those to be a little bit disturbing. They, they mimic uh, the things about the altar and Solomon's temple and the priesthood, and I think those are sacred uh, things, and I don't think they should be appropriated for some men's brotherhood organization. Uh, you know, from it. The premise, as I understand this, is that in the ancient days, a mason, you know, the guy who put stone blocks together, that was the high tech job of the day. They were considered to be kind of the smartest of the fellows in the community, and so they formed this guild, they formed this organization where you were a member because you had this particular skill. And they studied architecture and engineering and building, and it was kind of knowledge-based. But then it's, it's progressed to, you know, like a, a secret kind of society, although I think they're trying to change some of that now. But in any case, it's not something that I think really should be pursued. Uh, and particularly the check in my spirit has to do with them playing with things that come out of the temple service and trying to pronounce the name of God and other kinds of things that are going on with that. There's uh, different levels of uh, Freemasonry. And at the lowest level, it's viewed as this brotherhood and um, you know that does charitable work and, and does these good things but as you get up into the higher level particularly the highest levels you know what it truly represents and its intent is more fully revealed that perhaps it's not shared so explicitly um, at the lower levels so when you're in it at the lower level it, it, it may seem like um, it, it's, it's just a brotherhood that, that does good things, but if you really study it, particularly as you go up into the high levels, up into the 32nd, 33rd degree, um, then it's um, deceitful. Um, um, Secretive. Of what it represents, yeah. it's revealed, and, and, and then there's, a, um, there's an element above that. Um, that comes in with the ore of the garter and, 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 and things like this. So um, um, I agree with you that it, 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 shouldn't, it should be avoided. 
Yeah, I've, I've seen a documentary on, on History Channel. I think there was a series called uh, Decoded, I believe, that, that pursued a lot of things, trying to learn more things about the Freemasons, and what they discovered was very disturbing as far as, you know, what the practices are of the higher-ups and the secret society, and finding rooms, in fact, that had altars and symbolism and all kinds of things all over it. So um, I'm, I'm definitely, from what I've seen of that, you, it's something to be avoided. I generally just offer the counsel to basically avoid it right. for the brethren. Robert has another question here. It's along the same lines as some of the other issues, but perhaps we can give some personal encouragement to him. Uh, I just recently uh, started actually reading the Bible and going back to church. Uh, I am getting more and more worried and scared at how I've been living my life, which has led me to the Messianic movement, which I believe I'm being drawn to uh, by, by my heart. My question is, is how do I get my wife and family on board because Christmas and Easter have such joyous memories being ingrained in us since birth? I know she loves God and Yeshua, but getting her to break tradition, become kosher, and honor the feast will be a hard-fought battle. Well, uh, you know, that's the, the dilemma that all of us in our various homes are facing, mm -hmm. making the transition from the previous religious instruction to turn back to the things of the Lord, turn back to the Torah. Mm -hmm. And it's about, you know, learning his commandments and beginning to keep his commandments. And then that sets the example uh, from there uh, to do it. This is the way the Lord specified he'd like you to do it. You follow that pattern. Plus, the Spirit of the Lord is involved. And uh, if you set a powerful example of by simply doing it, that speaks volumes. People see it and, and it registers with them. Keeping the Sabbath, mm -hmm. keeping kosher, uh, paying attention to the biblical holidays. All of those things are transformative within a home, within a community. All right. Um, and like we mentioned earlier, maintain loving your spouse. Correct. And, and, and hold your family together. Don't, don't lose your family in the process. Right. One of the pieces of encouragement I always like sharing as well is always remember to afford the same amount of grace that the Lord had for you for many years of walking in a certain way, a certain path of life. Afford that same grace to those around you, friends, family Correct. members, and even yourself if you continue to operate with this feeling that you're not doing enough or not doing right. right. Or Don't get absolute on this thing. Mm -hmm. you, we're all learning. None of us have achieved perfection yet. Right. So we're all still learning. We're all in the process, and there's lots of people at different levels. So be kind and gracious to one another. Right. All right, our next question comes from uh, Linda uh, with regard to Mary Magdalene. Good morning. I've wondered something for years. Perhaps you can offer an answer. In Luke 8, it says uh, Mary was healed from seven demons. Uh, why do people say that she was a prostitute? It doesn't say that the demons did, did to her during uh, her possession. I want to believe calling her a prostitute is man's assumption. Thank you every single day, and you are definitely a light. You want to address that one? Um, um, I'm not quite sure I've studied specifically uh, Mary Magdalene um, in depth and in detail, but it is a, a, a common understanding from those who have studied um, that that's a part of her life and a part of what she was doing in addition to this um, you know, association that she was healed from the, the seven demons. 
I don't know what you want to add. To I that. don't know that I have anything further to add. Other than we're just simply re- repeating what the scripture says I think of one, her testimony. I think one of the things is, is obviously we're, we're sitting here talking about her, and Linda's asking this question, and she's basically saying she, she doesn't want to call her a prostitute if it's not in, accusing her of something that it's not proven well, that well, she was. But, but let me let me give let me give her some good news. Uh, the testimony of Mary is that she became a believer of Yeshua. Her sins were forgiven. So who cares what was in the background? Right. And who cares who said what or when J.R. was shot and who shot J.R.? It doesn't make any difference. Mm -hmm. Her real testimony is not what is her past. Her real testimony is that she became a follower of the Lord. Sometimes even the the path of redemption, if you were at the lowest of low and then have been brought up. Would it be appropriate, you know, for, say, to take a brother who's in the faith with us today and he's active in the faith he's walking the faith out and so forth but every time we mention his name we refer to him as the drunkard no that, that's a completely different matter those are things of the past and so when it's talking about Mary Magdalene when she first came it talks a little bit about her past but that's not who she became that's not who she really was right um, and perhaps she's a prophetic picture of Israel itself because uh, in the scriptures yeah. ancient Israel is called by God through the prophet as being a prostitute but then yeah. it says in Isaiah 118 though your sins be as scarlet they shall be white as snow right and mm-hmm. so it's it's not about the past the it's real about, story is about the redemption if you're going to receive what Yeshua has done for you in the redemption. And Hosea talks about how the Lord will go and bring them out of the nations no matter what they have done. That's the story of redemption. So it's actually perhaps more encouraging to us, if Mary had been a prostitute, that the path of redemption is able to be for her in the same way that Israel, who has prostituted itself throughout the nations, there's a path of redemption for them as well. And I believe the New Testament, um, while the things that were told there were literally true, it at the same time is prophetically uh, foreshadowing in giving you an association of the past and thus the future and the redemption. Let me just add one more thing uh, to it. Um, having gone out and done a lot of personal evangelism on leading people to the Lord, one of the things that you'll run into is people will, when they hear about the gospel and they hear about their receiving the Lord, they think that their sin is too great that and 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 they have a little hard time overcoming it i can only imagine what a young lady today if she let's say she was a prostitute and you presented uh, the gospel to her and you said hey the lord will forgive you she she might be in her mind going oh but my sins are so great how could he possibly do it well we have the testimony in the scripture that yeshua one of the, uh, one of the ladies that was involved with Yeshua, she had that same testimony, and she was successful in her redemption. So you would be you would be successful in our redemption. What about John chapter four, the woman at the well? There, you've had yes. these many husbands, right? Mm-hmm. And so you've been married multiple times, and and and, and the one you're with is you're not married to. She believed in Yeshua, right? And wanted to go and tell everybody, and and Yeshua said, "I'm offering you living water," right? I'm offering you something despite who you are, despite what you have in your background. I'm offering these things to you, and so you can overcome those. And that's part of the confidence in the Lord to trust him. Is, and all of us are sinners, you know, and not one of us would be able to tolerate if suddenly our sin was exposed 
in the past and revealed to the world. We'd probably die of embarrassment and shame, but the Lord is able to overcome those things, thank goodness. And as a result, when we hear of the testimony of others who've been into sin or terrible things, we have the confidence to go up to him and say to him, I don't care how perverse you've been. I don't care how terrible you've been. I don't care how much of a sinner you are. I'm here to tell you the redemption that is offered by the Messiah is greater than that. And I, I, I guess I would think of, that's the way I've always thought about Mary Magdalene. This is coming from the bottom of the barrel, and yet she becomes a very significant person in the ministry of Yeshua as he brings redemption to us all. Right. All right. Moving on, our next question comes from Sean. He asks this, why have some quoted Jews stating the tribulation will begin in winter? I, I think because well, I've actually said that. Because I've said that. <laughs> <laughs> the... the um, the, the Great Tribulation is a three-and-a-half-year period, so it begins on one season and it ends on the opposite of that season. So the reason why I say it begins in the winter is because it's in late summer that the Messiah specifically talked about that that's when his coming was. Learn the parable of the fig tree. You know, if you see the leaf come forth, do you not know that summer is near? The fall holidays come right on the cusp of the end of summer and the beginning of the fall. And we know that they are they're prophetic pictures of the coming of the Lord, the resurrection, the day of the Lord, uh, being in the kingdom with the Lord. They all come in that month of Tishri right at the edge of summer and fall. Mm-hmm. And so if, if that's going to be the end result after the Great Tribulation, we'll go back three and a half years. And that means the Great Tribulation has to begin in some future winter. At the end of a winter. At yeah. the end of a winter, and that very shortly thereafter is the elements of spring. Well, uh, Yeshua made that statement when he talked about the Great Tribulation. Pray that your flight be not on the Sabbath or in the winter, mm-hmm. which is indicating that's the time frame that would be uh, associated with the beginning. Right. So that's the reason why I say it, and yes, I've said that. Okay. Uh, our next question is kind of along the same lines, so talking about the tribulation. Uh, it comes from John. He says, I've read your tribulation handbook, and it seems like a very well thought out and thorough list. My question is, how will, be, will we be able to carry all of those things if we are not able to use our vehicles at some point? In my case, it might just be me and one other in my group. Thank you for the work that you do. In the I don't know, but that's your problem to solve. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm serious. One of the things I teach is containers. You know, develop a set of containers to carry as much as you can and manage it. If you got a vehicle, you can put a lot of stuff in a vehicle, but if you don't have a vehicle, do you have a cart? Do you have a backpack? Uh, you know, what, what else do you have? That's what you're going to do. But only you in that day can solve that problem. I can't. I can't project uh, that far into the future to solve the problem yeah. uh, for you. But, but uh, you know, that's up to you. I'm just trying to give you as much counsel as I can of, I think, items that you'll find to be helpful. And you also have another teaching called Suka Management that specifically points out, depending on the size of your group and your family, you can pack accordingly. Right, to, to pack and provide a proper sukkah for all of the needs of your family. Right. Along the same lines, uh, Byron asked a question. He's like, do you, is, do you have or is there a place uh, by which you can recommend that there would, 
that would have a list for preparation for the greater, greater exodus. Well, I think we were talking about the tribulation handbook, right. and that would be perhaps the location to find that list. But I can also tell you, we have this incredible um, fall festival called the Feast of Tabernacles. If you'll simply load your family and you up and go out and observe the Feast of Tabernacles, it's amazing what you'll learn about the things you have to prepare and the things you have to get ready for what the greater exodus will be. Right. All right. Our next uh, question comes from uh, Glorious. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Specifically in reference to uh, Revelation chapter 12. She says, I, uh, I used to be Catholic since birth for 32 years, but no more after Yeshua revealed to me important truths. So I am new in the Messianic community and have difficulty understanding Revelation chapter 12, specifically verses 1 through 6 and verses 13 through 18. Do these verses refer to the mother of Yeshua? Because in Catholic teaching, these verses imply uh, to marry his mother. Do, does it mean that she is the queen of heaven? Is it a sin seeking intercession through prayer from the mother of Yeshua. Uh, please, what is her true Jewish name, heritage, purpose, simple curiosity? Appreciate your time. I think the woman that is in the vision in Revelation chapter 12 is really talking about Israel. Mm-hmm. It's not Mary, uh, the mother. It, it's talking about Israel, the nation Israel, is the one that brought forth the Messiah to the world. And so it's talking about the deliverance of Israel in the days of the great tribulation. I think that's really what the meaning is. It's not it's not uh, jumping into the detail of uh, the Catholic uh, worship of Mary. And given that I agree that it's uh, a reference to Israel, it says a woman with 12 stars and a crown on her head. Specifically, um, I believe it's a reference to Zion, or in Hebrew, it's Zion. And in her um, coming forth, in the context of Messiah coming at the second coming to end her exile. And so 12 stars, I believe, is a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel. Crown on the head, ruling and reigning. Well, that Israel's going to be ruling and reigning with the Messiah after he sets his feet down in the Mount well, of Olives. That, but she's going to go through a birthing process, which is associated with the judgment of the nations and the end of the exile. And I think Revelation 12 is making a reference to that. And travail is the watchword for the Great Tribulation, like like birth. And I've also we should also make mention of that Joseph's dream for all of his brethren, for all of Israel, was the 12 stars with the sun and the moon. And so that reference to Joseph's dream certainly ties back into all of Israel. Now, there's a question here. You're the moderator. But she asked about uh, um, her true Jewish name, heritage, or purpose. Well, Mary in Hebrew is Miriam. And Miriam means bitter. Mm -hmm. And what's associated with bitter is to rebel. Um, So you have... And Mary and Martha, uh, both their names refer to being bitter. And I, I think they're a prophetic foreshadowing um, historically of the nation of Israel uh, because the nation of Israel was represented as a woman who was unfaithful and she had to uh, go through bitterness and exile and these types of things. But um, in John chapter 11, um, I believe that Martha prophetically 
uh, represents Christianity. Mary prophetically represents Judaism because Mary was sitting in the house. And that's an idiom for studying Torah mm -hmm. and the things of Torah. Martha says, I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God that would come in the world. And that's the, the confession of Christianity, believing that, that Yeshua is the Messiah. And uh, so um, I believe she prophetically foreshadows Israel. Historically, but I believe there's also a redemptive aspect to the understanding of her purpose. <laughs> I like that. All right. Okay. Uh, our next question uh, comes from Rebecca. She asks this. Our family has been involved in the Messianic movement for 10 years. We quit going to church and fellowship at home. Uh, we have four teenage boys and one adult son. Uh, their only friends uh, go to a conservative Christian New Testament church and occasionally invite our kids. Our kids having no Messianic friends occasionally attend their church and are involved in various activities. Our oldest wants to date someone at the church. I'm worried that my son will abandon his Messianic faith, then marry this girl. He is an adult, so I, can tell, I can't tell him what to do. Any advice on how to handle this? I really should never let them go or I really should never let them go in the first place, maybe God can use the situation for good. Uh, that's exactly right. We, we don't know the steps that we go through in life. Mm -hmm. um, it's really up to the Lord. The biggest thing I would say, Mom, pray. Mm -hmm. you know, pray for your son that, that he'll continue to remain faithful and trust the Lord. Yeah. And uh, parents never quit being concerned for their children. It doesn't know, stop. They, it never stops. Right. But you got to let them be who they are. I mean, you train them up to be independent, be able to go out and live. you you got to live with the results. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness there's a promise that says if you raise them up in the Lord, they'll not depart from it and they'll, they'll remain faithful. So that's the situation that she's in, typical situation for people as their children are leaving home. Right. We got a principle to pursue those in the faith, particularly, I believe it's best um, to pursue one that's like-minded in the faith. Um, that's the principle. It doesn't mean that there's a possibility that you can meet someone else that at that moment they don't understand your faith in your way, but they're willing to look and they're willing to consider. So there's there's an individual element here that um, we don't know about. Um, we can only really speak to it at the principal level. It may be that the Lord sees this young lady out there in the church and has special plans on her to get her to be part of messianic things, right. and this is the way it's being worked out. Right. And and I've and I've seen and met people and there's testimonies of that exact thing happening where mm -hmm. you know a messianic family raised their daughter always was looking for a a messianic boy that would marry their daughter well she lo and behold she'd go and find just a Christian guy through interaction but they fell in love but then suddenly they blossomed into an amazing couple he came around to messianic faith and thinking and it is an amazing thing while the father could sit there and have worried about how it all unfolded mm -hmm. it ended up being an amazing work for good so um but we, I, at the same time we can't use it as an excuse and say we'll right. just let them go out and do whatever they want yeah, so, yeah, there, there's a there's balance, a balance there. there's, there's a balance, there's a balance. Yeah. right 
Um, on a, kind of the same lines as far as uh, a family with, uh, with children here, we have another question here from Miriam um, that says this, My husband, husband and I have eight kids together and we homeschool. Uh, he works uh, in the medical profession and God has used him to bless others. Uh, he used to never get any days off per week. Now he gets Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Um, he told me that he's not likely to get Shabbat off uh, where he is working. Um, we do listen to the weekly Torah portion and enjoy listening to the study of Isaiah together. For the past 20 years or so, I've been observing Sabbath and teaching the kids uh, to do so. The only thing uh, they are they are told not to do is worry about earning a living or, or doing weekly chores. Um, the older kids get restless in the house on Saturdays. And some of the young adult children uh, go out and do various activities like go to a friend's church or skating. I want our kids to grow up in the Messianic faith and to follow God and His ways, yet I find it hard to do so without Absolutely no fellowship and limited resources. What do you do with five restless boys in the house complaining of boredom, particularly on Sabbath? I believe you write a note off to some messianic teacher and ask for help. Um, I don't know how to solve your problem. I mean, these are the kinds of issues that happen in all messianic homes. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit of a struggle. It's not easy. It's not easy to learn how to keep Sabbath. We all have to make a living. Um, that's that's the reason why uh, we try to encourage one another and we have fellowships and that's yeah. the reason why we study to understand the commandments and so that we can walk uprightly before the Lord. Um, but the dilemma that she's describing here, you know, is the situation of her home, her family, those are the circumstances for it. We can pray for it. I can certainly be empathetic of the thing. It, you do want to remember now life today isn't going to be what it's going to be tomorrow. Those children are going to grow up, and what goes on in your home is going to be different. So while right now it's not, it's not to your satisfaction, well, don't lose heart because it's going to be different. You know, tomorrow and hopefully better. And you continue to work it. You continue to pursue and to, to search for the best. So she says, well, what can I do to ensure my children stay on the right path? First of all, pray. Teach them. And then also stand on the promises of God because she says, what are some of the promises found that I can rely on? Well, it, it says, train up a child. Um, in the way that they should go, and when they're old, they will not depart. That's a promise of God that you can stand upon. Because as you're growing up, uh, you know, it's not like you're going to be the right person every single day of your life. Well, Joshua one eight says, for example, if you will meditate on these things and pursue, you know, the commandments and the law, <laughs> that God will make your life and your way prosperous and give you good success. And those include your family. The success in your family. So you pursue the good things. And, and in the end, uh, we believe that it will work out. So as uh, you're, you're raising them, you are training them. And the reason why you're training them is, is because you're, you're hoping, um, believing that um, there comes a point in time where that which you're training them in, they will then decide to own. Mm -hmm. And once they decide to own it, 
then they're going to follow in the right way right. And, and maintain it. Right. And, and it appears also she understands that she's looking, they are looking for a fellowship of like-minded brethren. That's what we do on, on Saturdays. You find a congregation and that occupies your time. You go and you celebrate with them and if there's kids classes or... And the reason why we have a youth camp is for some of those wild uh, <laughs> youth that don't know what to do with themselves. Right, and so uh, just obviously we, we we pray that you find that fellowship and 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 teach your children, establish plans, establish a routine on Sabbath that helps you to stay focused um, on some of those things. Might be some tips and tricks that can help uh, to occupy mm -hmm. those those bored kids. All right, our next question comes from Larry. He specifically he's got a series of questions uh, that he is asking specifically about a passage of scripture, Second Timothy three, verses one through nine. So if we read this, then we can start uh, maybe talking about some opinions expressed. Uh, but where it says this, but realize this that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful. Unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious, gossips, uh, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness. Although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins. Uh, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Just as uh, Giannis and Yombres uh, opposed Moses, uh, so these men all also oppose the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to, to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, uh, just as uh, Yane and Yombre folly was also. He's asking specifically, are there uh, those specific examples of perhaps people in today's religions that might fall into these particular categories as it starts to describe all of these uh, various types of people? That have a form of godliness but deny its power. Right. Um, our country, the United States of America and Western nations, has a form of godliness. But as I was thinking to myself as you were reading that, it sounds like the 6 o'clock news report on mass media <laughs> uh, in our country. I mean, they, we see these very characteristics in our own land, and yet we are a spiritual people, and yet we're trying to quote, follow the Lord, and yet all of these things are present. And that's what it is. It's a prophecy that speaks of a description of the last generation. Mm -hmm. I personally believe that we're in the last generation, and I believe that's one of the evidences that convinces me of it. Mm -hmm. uh, some um, ways that you could perhaps understand, deny its power. Um, the gospel is called the power of God mm -hmm. unto salvation. So you have a form of of religiosity, but um, your heart is not fully unto the Lord, uh, and it's even possible you're going to church and you're not saved. So that could be a form of godliness, but denying its power. Mm -hmm. But also, Paul talk. Paul said, um, "I didn't come with you with enticing words, but with demonstration of the power of God." And so here, the power of God uh, can be associated with those things that are associated with the Spirit of God and the pouring out of the Spirit of God and the gifts of the Spirit of God that 
perhaps um, we we want to have a church environment, but we doesn't we don't want anything to do with the things that the Spirit does, um, which first of all saves, but also the gifts of the Spirit and the other things. So once again, like we've had other answers. Um, there can be different layers of understanding of the application of what this would be talking about. Yeah, he, he asks also if, if this describes people that say who have taught that the law has passed away or that Paul has exonerated Gentiles from keeping the Sabbath. He also asks how Constantine and popes and the Catholic Church have fit into all of this and Martin Luther fits into all this. I don't believe that there is a specific religion that this mm. applies to, but it, reply, it applies to all people who might be one of faith, but yet denies the power. power yeah, of God. It, it's not a super specific kind of prophecy. It's it's a it's uh, you know vague and abstract. Mm-hmm. Um, and let me give you an example of the abstract. You know, we our money uh, that we have in this country, we say in God we trust. But you go down to the Supreme Court, you go down to the local uh, place, and they'll have a fit. Uh, if you have people uh, speaking publicly of God uh, because they want separation of the church and the state and so here we have a nation with some of the instruments and elements that define our nation as saying we trust in God and yet in practice we do everything we can to deny his presence Mm -hmm. that is having a form of godliness denying the power thereof now that's just a vague example I think there's all kinds of other examples yeah I mean it's like as you read this this actually fairly comprehensive list of of adjectives that describe various people it doesn't matter what religion you might fall into everybody can kind of fall into one of those that right. or, or met somebody along the way that would fall into that. So, okay. all right, I think we, we covered that. All right, we got a couple of questions from uh, Lucas. Uh, one specifically here, he's... Uh, these at, are our last two? These are our last two. Okay, praise yeah. the Lord. Yeah, so it looks like we're wrapping this up. Um, he specifically has a question about homosexuality, as, of course, the, the verse in Leviticus 18.21. He's heard some say that that verse has been mistranslated to mean only pedophilia and not homosexuality. He wanted to know specifically our take on this. I don't believe that we think that that's mistranslated. Um, but he does have a couple of questions, like pretty much um, just sort of answers for when these various things that many brethren have come across, uh, where it says, uh, how do you respond when people say that they are gay, but God accepts them as they are? How I've addressed the subject in the past, by the way, this is a hot button subject yes, uh, in the country at this moment. And supposedly if you speak and say anything adverse about somebody who's homosexual or about the topic homosexual, suddenly you're receiving the scorn of the public, mm-hmm. you know, and so forth. So let's just lay out, it. who cares what my opinion is on this? Nobody cares, mm-hmm. or anybody else's opinion. If you're asking the question, what does the Scripture say about this? In other words, the reference material that God has given to us that defines our faith. It says that homosexuality is a lustful sin just like other sexual lustful sins. Mm -hmm. It's like adultery. It's like fornication. It's like bestiality. It's like incest. And it's and there's homosexuality. It's it's in the category of that. Now he's used the expression, "Well, God loves me because even though I'm a gay, I know God loves adulterers." 
you know, he loves all sinners. He, he wants them to come to come to him. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's a license for that. Right. We would never advocate in an open society, oh, you should guys go out and just be adulterers uh, or fornicators. But there are elements of our society, they do that, and they used to be bashful about it when I was a kid. They're not bashful anymore. They flaunt it. You know, they flaunt being fornicators and so forth. Well, they flaunt homosexuality. Yeah. There are elements, as I understand it, that are trying to get change the opinion about pedophilia. They're trying trying to change the opinion. Polygamy, they're all manner of things that and they they're all grouped together in all of these um, perverse sexual sins that have to do with lust. And man is always trying to find a way to justify his lust so it will be acceptable. God says no, lust is not acceptable. Um, it does lots of harm, and don't do it. So um, that whenever I hear the subject comes up, this is really part of a much bigger subject in the scriptures, and it's about lust. And by the way, you're not supposed to be following after lustful things. Mm -hmm. It takes you away from the truth and the light and, and all manner of other things. And as a society and as a people, as a nation, there is no nation or civilization or power on this world that has ever survived historically as a people who flaunt these things. Righteousness exalts a nation. Mm -hmm. Sin debases it and tears it down. And personally, I'm watching my country in the course of one generation just taking a nosedive mm -hmm. because of that we, we, the citizens no longer uh, have a measure for what is right versus what is wrong. And they've walked away from the reference that God has given to us for righteousness. And they're now pursuing lustful pursuits, which the prophecy said would be done in the end. And that's what we have today. The self-justification, mm -hmm. the homosexuals, you know, well, God's love and he loves me and therefore you should love me and all that other business. God does love everybody. He, he loves everybody, but that's not a justification, yeah. you know, for any of this behavior. Yeah, Luke is asked also here: Is it normal for me to get angry when people say that God is okay with sexuality? Absolutely. The, I mean, the, I mean the, you're angry when any sin is. is there is committed. there is a an appropriate thing called righteous indignation. Mm -hmm. There is an appropriate thing, but not anger to the point where it's um, harmful. Mm -hmm. uh, righteous indignation is holding the line. And standing for that which is right, mm -hmm. um, and uh, listen, uh, you know, but not uh, angry in the sense of violence. Not not yeah. angry in the sense of judgment or trying to exact punishment on someone. Right. Uh, if somebody comes into our community, our community of faith, and he freely opens, admits he's a thief, he's a full-time thief. That's how he makes a living. He, you know steals other people's money, he breaks into their houses and steals their property, he goes up on the front porch and steals their Amazon packages, whatever. You know, his behavior would be unacceptable in our assembly because we have a commandment that says don't steal. Well, the same thing is true if he comes up and he announces, yeah, I, I follow my lustful sexual pursuits. 
and I commit adultery. Well, you're not going to be in the assembly where I'm at. I'm not allowing you to have access to my daughter or my wife. You know, you can take that elsewhere. Not here. It's not going to be acceptable. And the same thing is with, um, you know, this subject or any other subject. It, we've lost the sense of understanding what is right and wrong. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have a society that doesn't want any rules anymore. And so people like you and I who stand up and speak to the rules of God, the commandments of God, they, they are very opposed to us uh, and, and uh, so forth. They call us homophobic. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm going to give you a little fact story here. I am not afraid of any homosexuals. I am not homophobic. Okay, And by the way, in 1967, that's not what that word meant that it means today. In 1967, the word homophobic was a a term coined by psychiatrists because men were coming in and feeling temptations toward homosexuals. Weren't actually doing it, but they were feeling temptations of doing it. And so he coined the phrase homophobic. That has completely been turned around to where that that's the accusation about somebody who would stand up for that which is right and that goes to show you just how perverse and how twisted the logic and the thinking on this subject is it is unbelievably twisted around mm-hmm. uh, to this point if there is a, um, a homosexual person who's listening to this answer on this Q&A program I don't have a problem with you and you shouldn't have a problem with me you may discover that if you open the scriptures up and you see what God has to say about the subject, you might have a problem with God uh, as the same problem that any other sinner would have. And by the way, it's him you have to worry about his consequences, not me. I'm not judge of other men. He is. So do whatever you want. Just be aware of the fact you're going to have to give an account to him at the end. I can't do any better than that. Okay. All right. We got it. What else have we got? We have one last question. Uh, it also comes from Lucas. We'll see if we can get it uh, covered here. Um, he's like, I'm not, I'm not an atheist bashing the Bible, but I am struggling with a particular Bible verse. Um, I know that an Israelite may become an indentured servant to pay off a debt to gain money, etc., and that on the Jubilee, no matter what, the servant is released. I also know that you may not sell another Israelite according to Scripture. However, specifically, Leviticus chapter 25, verses 44 through 46 says that you may buy a slave from other nations and that they are permanent property. Why are Israelites and Gentiles treated differently when it comes to servitude? And why can I buy and own a Gentile forever? I thought God saw all people as equal. Okay, well, let me say right off the bat, what is known as ancient slavery, biblical slavery, was an economic system. By the way, let me give you the modern update of it. Uh, you go to a job and you work at a company and you're indentured to them and you're a slave. You're a servant to them and you get compensated accordingly. Some of you are so stuck, you're going to be there until you retire. Some are more free. They can move about. They can pick and choose what they want to do. Um, but do not take those passages of scriptures that talking about the economics, the ancient economics, and try to go forward to under the definition of slavery that we understand, which was abusive and harmful 
in all cases um, and try to say, well, they're the same thing as the biblical slavery. They're not. They were completely different. The closest thing that we have to biblical slavery that we have today is people who go and work for companies and have bosses and managers and um, trades and skills. It, and it, so it used to be the same. I sold my soul to the company store. That's right. I right. mean, there was days, uh, I, I believe in the coal mining uh, industry, where um, and they're you, trapped. you were paid low wages, and then you had to, to, to pay rent to the company, and then you had to buy from the company store. So, and they and took that, all the money back. And that says you were a slave to the company, yeah. even though you were trying to work to and make it a living. it was a terrible, it was a terrible thing. Well, and then, and then it was today, not fair or right or whatever. Today, there still are permanent contracts that people sign with various companies to work yeah. certain things, and you, there's permanent contracts. Obviously, you never would recommend the permanent contract because you never know what might change, but that's basically what it was in ancient times. Right. It was a way of dealing with the economic issues of the day. Yeah. Uh, let, let's wrap up one one final little uh, note that Lucas has here at the very end of this question, which is great for the two of you to discuss briefly. Uh, he has a disagreement with a friend about the exact return of Yeshua. Uh, his friend obviously believes that he will return before uh, the great wine press of God's fury. He, however, believes more along our lines that he will return after the wrath of God has been poured out and Israelites have been saved in the same way they were saved through the plagues of Egypt. What would be you? What would you say uh, as far as describing uh, when the Lord returns? Does it happen before or after the wrath of the Lord is poured out? I, I think where this person is coming from is in the book of Revelation it talks about the bowls of wrath. Mm -hmm. that, that wrath that is in that prophecy is not the wrath that comes in the day of the Lord the day of reconciliation of all things. It's really a form of a judgment that is it. Now, we are not exempted from God's judgments. What we have as a promise is the wrath of God is not stored up for us. And it's a reference. The day of the Lord is not the destiny of believers. The day of the Lord is the destiny of unbelievers. But are we subject to different judgments that will be going on in the world? Yes, we'll have to live in the world while God's judging a variety of things. But we get delivered from his wrath. So when you apply that, um, where they're talking about when we escape and all of that, you, you, you can escape the wrath of God by being a believer, and he has promised you you will. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there won't be judgments taking place in the world, um, you know, leading up to that. So when did Yeshua set his feet down on the Mount of Olives? After the day of the Lord. And what happens just before the day of the Lord is the trumpet sounds and he gathers the elect. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, so the sequence there is pretty clear. And, and I know what this is really leading to. Are we going to be around for the Great Tribulation and see the things that happen in the book of Revelation? Yeah. Are we going to be around to see the day of the Lord? Well, you're going to have a balcony seat with the Lord when you see that. You're not going to be on the earth. Right. And, of course, there's no mention of any preacher of rapture in the scripture. Correct. All right. Is that it? That is it. Okay. Eddie, thank you for joining us, being a part of our program. Ephraim, good job. This is fun. Thank you for joining us for this program. And, and again, if you'd like to be a part of a future program, send us your biblical questions in to qa at net, and we'll be happy to make them a part of the program. Thank you for the questions that were sent. All of it simulates 
interesting discussion. And so the Lord bless all of you, and we'll see you again in another program. Shalom. Shalom. Shalom.